0: if you would open your Bibles to the 21st chapter of the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 21, verses 18 to 22. And first, a few comments about where we are as a church body, as a household of faith. The Bible tells us that the household of God is the pillar and foundation of the truth. And this last week, in some of the appointments that I've had, the question of truth has been very much at the center of what we've been working hard on. Our work has produced sweat. It's produced quite a few tears. Because in our families, we often conspire to repeat, to tell, to repeat, and to tell lies. There are a lot of families that exist to cover up truth. A lot of sins that children grow up thinking that it's their primary calling in life to hide. And so when we come to Scripture, when we come to the church, we think that the church is the place where we're to continue to hide, continue to lie. And then we pay preachers to lie. Because after all, our family systems and everything we do is about lies. So the preacher should know enough to lie also. He shouldn't ask us whether we were abused as young women by our stepfathers. He shouldn't ask our stepfathers to confess the abuse. He shouldn't talk to us about why we were really not in church last Sunday. He should just assume we were sick, not that we were bitter and filled with envy. And if the pastor lies well enough, he gets a large church and he gets paid well. And if you have been honest just now, you will know that that's not what we actually want. It is what we try to get, but you know, like little children, we often try to get things we shouldn't have. And so this morning, I hope you won't try to get lying from the Word of God or from the preacher of God's Word. I hope you are praying that I will be faithful to the text of Scripture. I hope you want truth from God's Word. If you think of the church as being the vessel that God has appointed to give him what he wants... And if you're with me on that, that that's what the church exists for, then you'll realize that if the church is lying, it will make a big show of giving to God what he wants, but it won't actually give it to him, right? So for instance, the philosopher whose name begins with a K, but I'm not going to say the word because it's intimidating although I already said he's a philosopher, and that's intimidating, has a little parable that he wrote once in the newspaper because he said you should preach where people who are pagans are listening. And that's not churches. That's in the newspaper. So he preached this little parable in the newspaper. He said uh, Christians make a big show of giving to God the fruit that he says he wants, but they don't actually give it. it. He said it's like a man who would tell all the people that are in his kingdom that he loves nuts. And he said all the people in the kingdom would bring together as many nuts as they possibly could, but but the nuts would all be shells with nothing, no meat, nothing inside. And they'd pour heaps and heaps and heaps of shells on the king, making a big show of giving him what he wants, but nothing inside of the shell. And he says, this is what the church is today. Now let me ask you the question, does God care about what's inside the shell, or is it enough that you're on the heap of shells looking like a, shell, like, like a nut? I mean, you know, <laughs> you're here, so you do look like a nut. Does it matter what's inside the shell? Or as long as you show up and you're a Christian and you're Protestant and you're not, you know, Scientology. You're not Islamic. You're not Roman Catholic. You're Protestant. And you go to a Bible believer. You're evangelical. And as long as you show up with a good shell, you know, Protestant, Christian, maybe even Reformed, although, you know, that really can't matter. And, and maybe even like Father Rule Reformed. In other words, you, you say all the right words, but inside you're filled with every kind of lust and bitterness and pride. Does God care? Or let's say, instead of thinking about you as an individual, let's think about the church. Here we have a church, which, you know, now we actually have a building. We don't look like a public school anymore. Eh, It's not much of a churchy church, but it does kind of, if we could turn off the ventilation, it sounds like a cathedral, actually, I think. doesn't look like one. And we sing hymns, and, and the shell is all there. We have a preacher, we have hymns, we read scripture, we pray, right? We have elders, we have pastors. And so the shell is is doing well. I mean, you may have objections to certain parts of it. But generally, it's a good show, isn't it? But the church is filled. You go Did you ever make the mistake of having a church that you belong to? and then going to a congregational meeting. Did you ever make that mistake? I've made it. I'll never forget. I thought church was to love. And then I became a pastor. My first congregational meeting, this old crusty dude stands up in the meeting, and then I saw who he was. And he was vile. And he spewed his his vileness out in a congregational meeting, because nobody had ever asked him to lead worship. But in a congregational meeting, everybody can speak. And when his mouth opened, out of the heart, the mouth spoke. You ever make the mistake of going to a congregational meeting? And then you see that the beautiful shell of the church, at the, at the heart of it, inside, is every vile thing. That actually nobody in the church loves each other, because the minute the congregational meeting starts... This person starts firing bullets at this person. And this person starts trying to protect themselves by firing bullets back. And the pastor clearly is a part of the problem because he's firing bullets at the congregation. And you see the elders firing bullets at the pastor. And you realize the church is what? It's a shell. It doesn't have any fruit. It looks like a church, smells like a church, acts like a church. But inside is everything vile, right? Does it matter what's inside our shelves as a church, as individuals? What about our homes? You look at the outside of the home. It's perfect. It has shutters, right? It has a concrete driveway, and you spent $700 and had the oil pan fixed so it doesn't have oil on the driveway. True. (laughs) Ridiculous. I did it. Because why? I want my shell to look good. You know? The windows are clean. The fights generally don't happen in the front yard. (laughs) One time they did. And so it looks like a nice house, doesn't it? Our house is a very, very, very fine house. Right? The children are all clean. They get good SAT scores. The wife dresses properly for church. Does God care what's in the home? Does God care whether the shell has fruit inside of it? In America today, everything conspires against the concept of fruit, let alone the quality of fruit everything. America is a great conspiracy to separate the concept of fruitfulness from marriage. Everything about us as a country is aimed at getting us to think that the fruitfulness of the womb is an option and that it really isn't central to marriage. You just make decisions and, you know, it used to be that people needed children, but we don't need them anymore. And so fruitfulness right away, the fruit of the womb, basic to human life, Right there at the beginning, we have thoughts about the fruit of the womb that are completely perverse in all human history, let alone the Word of God. Why? Well, I don't think it's necessarily because Satan hates children, although he does. But I think that God has set up the entire universe in such a way to teach us the lesson that He is our Creator. And that He demands that we produce Him fruit. And so what? Well, marriage is an option. And then having children in marriage is an option. And then even the house, whether or not the house has love at the center of it, whether you ever have a meal together where there is fellowship at a table is an option. Whether the church has love at the center is an option. And then we move progressively into the question of our hearts and the heart of the church producing fruit for God. And then the conspiracy gets very, very intense. And the prophets prophesy lies to the people. And the people love it that way. And what are the lies of the prophets? The prophets tell you, peace, peace, where there is no priest. They tell you, fruit, fruit, where there is no fruit. Or they tell you whether or not you have fruit doesn't matter because once saved, always saved. Right? Isn't that the whole purpose of the perseverance of the saints, the preservation of the saints, eternal security, once saved, always saved, is to get your mind off fruit so that you won't be a legalist and think that anything but grace matters, right? I mean, Reformed doctrine has a purpose. Right? And the purpose of Reformed doctrine is to get your mind off fruit. So then you have a seminary, which all the seminary talks about is grace. And what's the point? Well, the point is to forget about fruit. And the prophets prophesy lies in the name of God. They get up front and they preach as if it doesn't matter. We're saved. And it's just a question of sort of helping each other discover the the high points of the journey. You know, like the signs you see on the highway as you drive? Your wife always tries to get you to stop because it's interesting. It's a point of interest. And I'm not interested. Because my goal as a man is to get there without pit stops. you'd be mistaken right now if you said that I woke up on the wrong side of the bed and that I'm having a bad day. I'm not, actually. Last night was a good night. My conscience is actually clean this morning. And I am happy. And the reason is that I get to preach God's Word to you, and I belong to a church that will fire me if I don't preach the truth. A church where if I don't focus on fruit and rather focus on the shell, they will get rid of me. And you may not be used to a church like this, but it's a good place for a preacher to be. Because it makes him honest, or at least disciplines him toward honesty. And so this morning I want you to check your expectations about me. Do you want me to lie to you or do you want me to focus on the truth? Do you want me to talk about the shell or do you want to look at the kernel, the meat? Do you want nuts or do you want the appearance of nuts? We've arrived in Matthew at the point where Jesus is about to die. And in order to die, he has to have a grand jury indict him and the indictment has to be pure and good. And so Jesus has been building the indictment consciously from the time he came to earth. And now he's going to set about building the indictment very carefully. And by the time he's done building the indictment, there's no way that those people appointed to execute him will be able to escape their duty. Right? So let's watch him build his indictment as he comes to Jerusalem. Matthew 21:18. Now in the morning, when he, Jesus, was returning to the city, he became hungry. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said to it, No longer shall there ever be any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. Seeing this, the disciples were amazed and asked, How did the fig tree wither all at once? And Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. And all things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. This is the Word of the Lord. Now our text begins with the storyteller Matthew telling his readers where and when this all happened. When did it happen? Jesus was traveling to Jerusalem... Arriving in time to celebrate the Passover there with his disciples in the upper room. He made his triumphal entry, which is the occasion that we celebrate on Palm Sunday. And then Jesus did what? He went into the temple and he cleansed the temple. Driving the money changers out with a whip and clearing out their animals and tables as well. Jesus then cursed the, figless, the fruitless fig tree And Jesus responded to his disciples' amazement at the withering of the fig tree by speaking to them about faith and the power of prayer. Now, the order of what happened is not as clear in Matthew as it is in Mark. And we're going to take the order of Mark and note it. First, the triumphal entry on Sunday, followed by the cursing of the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple Monday, Monday night, following the cleansing of the temple, Jesus went out of the city to spend the night with friends in Bethany, a village about two miles outside of Jerusalem. And probably the friends that he stayed with were Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. The next morning Tuesday, Jesus gets up and was walking back into the city of Jerusalem when he passed the withered tree. And his disciples exclaim over the tree's demise, and Jesus speaks to them about faith and prayer. Sunday triumphal entry, Monday cursing of fig tree, cleansing of temple, Tuesday appearance of withered fig tree, an explanation of the power of prayer. So, verse 18, in the morning when he was returning to the city, he became hungry. Now, dwelling so constantly on Jesus' divinity, we tend to forget his humanity. And so it almost seems as if Jesus should never be motivated to do anything out of hunger. Why would he be hungry? He was God. Well, he was God and he was man and he was hungry. Another place we see his hunger is when he's out in the wilderness and he has been without food or water for 40 days. And the Bible tells us Satan came to him and tempted him to turn a stone into bread. And Jesus says, man, quoting scripture, shall not what? Live on bread alone, but on the Word of God. And so here Jesus also is hungry. It says He became hungry, verse 18. Now the Bible tells us that Jesus is tempted in every way like as we are, yet without sin. Do you believe that Jesus was tempted in every way that you are? And more specifically, do you believe that Jesus was tempted by the lust of the flesh, specifically by food? Do you believe that Jesus is tempted by food? Last few months, I have had a, a bodily hunger for something that is sin, and so I've been disciplining it. And there are certain occasions that I would associate with that thing. And so when it comes to those occasions, I'm thinking, well, my wife is empty. Now, I'll bet a lot of you can identify with that. Another thing I'd do is if I had a nasty counseling appointment where the pain was all, all over the walls incommoding the passers-by, I would, in that counseling appointment, sit there and think to myself, I'm going to eat dinner soon. And it would help me get through the counseling appointment. I know you don't do that, right? And when I would think about food, and you know, I'd like to tell you it was my thought of the joy of being at my table with my children and my wife, <laughs> but usually it was actually food. Um, when I would think about the food to get through the appointment because it was so painful, then I would remember what the Bible says about food. And what the Bible says about fruit is that people like me have their God... Their belly. Whose gods are their belly? It says in Philippians, doesn't it? And I'd be slain because I'd look down and my son Joseph might not be able to find it, but on me it's there, my belly. And I'd think of it and I'd think, is my God my belly? One of the problems with food is that you need it to survive. And so God has set us up, hasn't he? He's given us the necessity of eating. And then our God is our belly. And so in America today, it's very difficult, given our grocery stores, given the ads on the radio and the magazines on television, uh, given the centrality of food at church life, for those of us who struggle with our, God's being our belly, to not constantly give in to sin. But on the other hand, we find that when we go to heaven, there's the marriage feast of the Lamb, and there is that little word feast in it. And what that means is that food is good, food is for the body. Everything when taken with prayer and thanksgiving is sanctified. And so here we see Jesus and Jesus is hungry. So was Jesus belly his God. The Bible says in Matthew 10 or in Hebrews 4, for we do not have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus was hungry and Jesus didn't sin, right? Because if Jesus sinned, then he isn't the spotless Lamb of God. He isn't the perfect Lamb of God. And therefore, his sacrifice on the cross cannot save us. Jesus is perfect. He was tempted in all ways like as we are. Every way like as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus is hungry. He's on his way into Jerusalem. And he sees a lone fig tree by the road. And he comes to it and he finds nothing on it except leaves. The tree is fruitless. Now, wanting fruit from the fig tree and finding none, what does Jesus do? In verse 19 it says, He said to it, the fig tree, No longer shall there ever be any fruit from you, and at once the fig tree withered. So Jesus cursed the fig tree with fruitlessness, after which it was all over for the tree. It withered immediately. That's the plain fact of the story. But why was the fig tree fruitless? Well, in the parallel in Mark, we read in Mark 11.13, He found nothing but leaves, And then it says, for it was not the season for figs. And so the reason the fig tree was fruitless was that it wasn't fig season. So here we have Jesus hungry. He sees a fig tree. He walks over to get some fruit. He finds it fruitless. He curses the tree for its fruitlessness. Immediately the tree withers up. And this raises two questions. First, why did Jesus expect figs to be on the fig tree? It wasn't the season for figs. And second, since it wasn't the season for figs, why did Jesus punish the fig tree for being fruitless? How could he expect the fig tree to bear fruit out of season? Right? If you're honest when you read Scripture, you have those same two questions, and maybe more. So what are the answers to the questions? Well, if you pick up commentaries on the text, you'll find that the answers are all over the place. But everybody tries to answer the questions. And the most popular answer today comes from R.K. Harrison, who in an article in a Bible encyclopedia explains that fig trees, when they have full leaves, produce fruit then. That in other words, when a fig tree is in leaf, it is fruitful. And it may be that it has leaves that are covering fruit that isn't yet fully Ripe, and so the fruit might not taste great, but it, it will take care of your hunger. And so then, of course, if you think about this explanation of what Jesus is doing, you realize where everybody ends up. Everybody ends up saying that the real problem with the fig tree is that it's advertising fruit, and that when you go over, there is no fruit there, so it's false advertising. And so the reason Jesus punished the fig tree was it was claiming to be something it wasn't. And that's what almost everybody says is the answer to the dilemma we find ourselves in when we read this text. False advertising. And then, if you think about it, how do you apply that to us? Well, it's simple. It's simply a parable against hypocrisy. The churches that claim to be Christian churches and endorse sodomy and endorse abortion and endorse pride and endorse materialism and endorse racism and endorse gossip and and attack male authority are false churches. They may have the name Christian. They may be Protestant. They may be Reformed. They may be Presbyterian or Baptist. But the leaves are out. There ain't no fruit. False advertising, Jesus is condemning. It's a nice solution, isn't it? I don't think that that's what's going on here. First of all, Do you really think that any young man would grow up in an agrarian economy, in a a rural area, in a farmland, where one of the major sources of food is figs, where when you're walking you pull the figs off the trees and eat them, and he doesn't know what fig season is? I don't think so. I think Jesus knew when fig season was and looked forward to it every year and anticipated being able to pull some figs off the trees and eat them fresh. Right? One commentator from like a century and a half ago even says that this is the only occasion we have of Jesus punishing one of his creatures as a way of making a theological point. He actually uses the word creature to refer to the fig tree. So like that takes Green's piece and raises it one. You know, because we're, not, we're dealing with, you know, a plant, not even an animal. And he says, you know, that Jesus is not kind to the creature. It reminds me of my environmental ethics class at UW-Madison where uh, we studied uh, this group of people that are trying to give standing in the court system to redwood trees. I am a redwood tree, and I'm bringing charges against the timber company. And it's serious, and you will see this and more in your lifetime. So we look at the tree, the fig tree, as a creature, and we think, you know, Jesus is not being fair to it. It's not really fair to the tree that Jesus curses it when it's out of season, and he's hungry. And again, the the implication is Jesus is sinning, right? Jesus is impatient and gives in to his impatience. He has a fit of peak, right? And he goes ahead and he curses the fig tree. Now, what is going on with this fig tree? Well, you have to get into the middle of the building of the indictment. Jesus is now on a march to the cross, and he's coming to Jerusalem. And as he comes to Jerusalem, he's hungry, and there's a fig tree, and he goes to eat, and there's no fruit. There's no fruit. If you have a Bible, would you open to Isaiah chapter 5 with me? Isaiah chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. This is another indictment. This is the indictment of the prophet Isaiah, given to him by God against God's people. Alright? And we have a record of the indictment here in Isaiah 5, beginning with verse 1. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine, and he built a tower in the middle of it and also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then what? He expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, inhabitants of Jerusalem, where is Jesus going? going to Jerusalem. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, where is Jerusalem? It's in Judah. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, (coughs) judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? In other words, I've been a good farmer. I've been a good orchardman. I've been a good vineyard. Or what would you call it, Wayne? A what? A what? Husbandman, all right, that doesn't satisfy me, but i 'll take it okay i've been a good husbandman. What more was there to do for my vineyard than I have not done for it in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good fruits, did it produce worthless ones? So now, let me tell you what I 'm going to do to my vineyard, and all of a sudden you feel it. Dun, 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 dun. So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I'll break down its wall and it will become trampled ground. I'll lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I'll also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. For because the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, his delightful plant, thus he looked for justice. But behold, bloodshed for righteousness. But behold, a cry of distress. (coughs) Who is the vineyard of the Lord of hosts? The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house or nation of Israel, the men of Judah. (coughs) And we look at the Gospel of Matthew and the other Gospels. And at this point in the story, we see here comes the vineyard's owner. Thank you, Cindy. He's coming to Jerusalem at the time of the Passover feast. And he's hungry for fruit. But what does he find? Well, look at Matthew 21 verses 12 and 13, right before our text. It says, Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. Jesus is hungry for fruit, but what does He find? He finds that the house of prayer has become a robber's tent. Now people, be honest with me. Is that not what the church in America today is? Is that not what the church of America today is? It's one massive show inundating Jesus with shells with no meat making a huge show of millions and millions of shells the more the better you know the church buildings are filled with shells take any one of them at random and crack them open in every kind of ungodliness the abuse of their own daughters sexually and divorce and lust and pornography, and gossip, and slander, and the sales of the Christian books are through the roof, and it's inflation-proof. We make this huge show of inundating Jesus Christ with fruit, with, with nuts, with, and we pour shells in through the tops of the roofs, and we keep careful track of the growth year by year of all the shells. Having a form of godliness, though, we deny the power thereof. How many times I've met with families where I have dealt with sexual molestation of their sons and daughters in their home? I've dealt with the rape of boys and girls. Let me tell you the rape of boys is constant but it's the one thing that can never be mentioned in America today. I've dealt with every kind of perversity as a pastor. Somebody after the morning church today came up to me and said I found out such and such and pastor how do you handle it? It's it's the ministry today in America. It's the church. It's not because I'm over at the frat houses. It's the church. This is the church. Fatherless children. Why do you think the Old Testament ends with He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the sons and the sons to the fathers? And Jesus says what? Jesus says, I will have And so in America today, we have churches all over the country. They say that if the most religious country in the world is India and the most pagan is Sweden, that America is a nation of Indians governed by Swedes. America is filled with religion. It's one of the chief engines that draws, drives, drives our economy. Fills the airwaves, fills the television screens, fills our bookshelves, Bibles out the wazoo huge, huge show of producing fruit for God. So why am I spending my life dealing with the sexual abuse of children of Christian churches? Is this the fruit of our preaching? Is this the fruit of our Lord's table? Is this the fruit of our eldering, the fruit of our deaconing, the fruit of our motherhood? So then what we do is we get pastors who will come and preach grace to us, because that's what we need is grace. And if we have more grace, then all our pain will go away. Alan Bloom in The Closing American Mind says that his, his students at University of Chicago no longer had lights on in their eyeballs. That he noticed that the light was out in the eyeballs, And as he began to look for why, he realized it was because of the divorce of their parents. That children had grown up and had no desire to live. They had no excitement to learn. They had no hope. And this man is a philosopher who was a sodomite, had no commitment to faith to God, none. But he knew what he saw. And he said, The light's out. No one's home. And then he said this. He said, what have their parents done? He said, what their parents have sent them to a psychologist. And he says, and psychologists are the sworn enemies of guilt. Now, all of us can, we can all hop on that bandwagon, right? Except those of you that are psychologists. (laughs) But you know. What do parents do with kids when they have a divorce? They send their children to a psychologist. He's wetting his bed. There's something wrong with him, doctor. Well, maybe it's because you were abusing him. Handle it, doctor. How much do you want? $150 an hour? Handle it. And so then we transfer it and we say, okay, let's say they're Christians. Instead of going to a psychologist, they go to the pastor, don't they? And so... Everybody sends their children to me, and I'm supposed to handle it, Pastor. What am I supposed to do? Well, preach on grace. And so preachers have become the sworn enemies of guilt. And how do we do it? Grace, 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 grace. And then you don't have to face the fruitlessness of your home or the desperately awful fruit of your home. And the whole church becomes a conspiracy of lies. Nobody's a sinner. Nobody confesses anything. We just all talk about grace and sovereignty and providence and all those good words, you know. And to hell with you. You know what the Bible tells us? The Bible tells us that... The leaders of the church at the time of Christ went across heaven and earth to win a single convert and then turned him into twice the son of hell they were themselves. Now, you can understand that about the scribes and Pharisees, right? You can understand that, right? Does anybody have trouble saying that about the scribes and Pharisees? We have nothing at stake. But what about us today? Do we go across heaven and earth to win a single convert and then turn him into twice the son of hell we are ourselves? No, American missions is the great story of the 20th century and the 19th century, right? So what about our converts? What are they like? What fruit do we see of American missions? Do you know that when Rwanda went into its orgy of machetes, 750,000 to a million people killed within the space of what, 90 days? Do you know what the Evangelical Missions Quarterly editor Jim Reapson wrote about that when it happened? He said, you know, there may be something here for us to learn because this nation has been a success story of American missions. These people, he said, are Christians. And so now we repent of Rwanda and we say, well, Rwanda was... Just an awful, awful thing, and it was tribalism. But here in America, we don't have tribalism. We just kill unborn children at the rate of 1.3 million a year. You're in, you're out. You're in, you're out. There, but there's there's no violence in the land because, you know, no baby can come back and tell us what he suffered. No Holocaust memorial to our unborn children. And we are the most Christian nation in history. In other words, if Jesus were to come to us today and he were to be hungry for fruit, what do you think that he would say? Forget me. Maybe I got up on the wrong side of the bed this morning. What do you think he would say? You say, oh, preacher, there you go again. Say something nice to us. You know, we can't stand him because he always has negative messages. Okay, let's forget the church. And let's talk about ourselves in our own hearts, in our own homes. What about your home and your marriage and your own heart? When you come here on Sunday morning, do you bring fruit to God? What fruit does God want from you on Sunday morning? Huh? You know what God wants from me on Sunday morning? Forget that I'm a preacher for a second. What does God want from me on Sunday morning? You know what God wants from me on Sunday morning? God wants me to praise him. How do I praise God? Well, when somebody prays a prayer of confession, God wants me to confess my sin. And then when they read the assurance of pardon, God wants me to thank him for his forgiveness. Right? That's fruit that God wants. Do you confess your sins when you come here on Sunday morning? then God wants me to sing praises to Him. Do you sing praises here on Sunday morning? This is fruit. When the Word of God is open, God wants a tent of listeners whose hearts are humble, still, quieted, meek. When I preach, are you meek and humble before me? You say, oh, (laughs) that is a hill too high. I say, hey, listen, there ain't nobody you're going to find to preach to you who isn't a pill. It's the nature of man. So it's just a question of what poison you're going to take. But it will be poison. Somebody's going to preach to you, and whoever that person is is going to be gnarly. Do you give God the fruit of humility and meekness before the preaching of the word? Do you do that? You know, I can tell. (laughs) It is actually very obvious to me. But you know what? God has given me a love for you, even if you're nasty. That's one of the things that God has given me that's like really neat. My love to you is not a function of how nice you are, how clean you are. As a matter of fact, a lot of times, the dirtier you are, the more I am pit- sort of love you. Do you give God fruit? Do you give Him fruit? Do you? Do you come to the Lord's table and do you eat at it? God wants you to. He's commanded you to. Do you eat at the Lord's table? God wants fruit from you. You nurse a grudge against people, and so in your self righteousness, you, you say, Well, he says, Don't don't ever, you know, don't ever go to the altar, you know, leave your gift at the altar and go first make it right. So I'm not going to make it right, so I'm never going to go to the altar. Do you give fruit to God? What about giving money to him? Do you give money to God? You say, oh, there he goes. Hey, listen. I have no apology about telling you to give money to the church. None. I do it. You should do it. It's a great privilege. It's relinquishing control of something that I desperately love. <laughs> and that's a good thing to do. In fact, probably with me, the best thing I could do would be to bring little pints of Hagen and put it in the offering plate. Laughter. Do you take the first fruits in your life and give them to God? Do you give Him fruit? This tree was created by God. And God the Creator was hungry one day and happened to be hungry on a day that was not the season for figs. And that tree did not give him fruit. And you know what happened to that tree? It was over. Let me ask you, when is the season to give God fruit? Yeah. When is it? Now, all of a sudden, you don't know. You didn't think I'd see you lifting up your arm, did you? You know when the season is for fruit? The season is when God wants it. The instant God wants fruit from us, that's the season. Jesus doesn't have to justify His hunger out of season for a fig tree. He made that fig tree. When He, the Creator, desires fruit from that tree, that tree existed to give Him fruit precisely at that moment. And so you say to God, well, you know... The day will come when I'll give you fruit, but for now I'm young and I'm going to sow a few wild oats. <laughs> Don't worry, the time will come when I will give you your just dues, but everybody has to sow their wild oats. Mignogna. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says the servants were getting drunk, and then Jesus returned. How? Like a thief in the night. At the time we least expected. How about the virgins with their lamps? No, they didn't need to keep them filled with oil, did they? But then the bridegroom came. You remember that? And there were wise virgins who had lamps filled. And so what did the foolish virgins say? It's like they were in a Socialist economy, right? Said to the wise virgins, give us some of your oil, you know. Come on, help us, help us. We don't want to not be in the marriage feast of the lamb. Help us. No, you go get your own oil. So they ran off quickly to get their own oil. And then what happened? They got to the marriage feast of the lamb and what? The door was shut. Jesus came up to that fig tree. And he was hungry, and he was the maker of the universe. And that was the season for figs. And the fig tree didn't have any. And so Jesus gave us a very, very clear parable of what will happen to us when the Son of Man returns. And for you, the Son of Man might return as soon as you leave this church this morning, you might be up at the corner of Enright and Airport, and you might pull out in front of a pickup truck, and it's over. You're done. And the second you're done, you will stand before the living God, and you will give an account to Him for your life. And if you try to trot out all that crap about grace and sovereignty and providence, God will not be fooled. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. The man that soweth to his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. You can be an evangelical. You can have membership in an evangelical free church. You can have books that are published under your name. You can have a missions budget that's $3 million. You can have 10,000 people, 30,000. You can run 50,000 in your church. You can have radio programs. You can have an unbelievable reputation for godly homeschooling. You can be on the board of a Christian school. You can give money out the wazoo to Campus Crusade. You can sleep on the floor preparing yourself like Hudson Taylor to be a missionary to China. You can give your body to be burned. And if you don't have fruit, you are nothing. And God will judge you. And the day will come when you will stand before Him in your nakedness, and you will not be dressed in the righteousness of Christ, and the Master will look at you at that table and He'll say, How did you get in here? Why are you dressed like that in My presence? And he will say, throw him outside where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And you will say, but I was a member of an evangelical free church. I was a member of church. I was on the board of church. I was a preacher. I preached this very sermon." And he'll say, out of my presence where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth and the door will see slam shut behind me. And I will see that I had no fruit. And I'll say, but, but it's grace. You know, it's faith. And he'll say, where was your faith? And I'll say, I was in church on Sunday. He says, that's not faith. I was baptized. That's not faith. I, I took the Lord's Supper every two weeks. That's not faith. I had my children take communion. That's not faith. Get away from me. I never knew you. Oh, Jesus, don't you understand? We're not saved by clothing the naked. That's works. You know, forget your rigid connection to fruit, Jesus. You know, remember Paul, Jesus. You know, Paul says, for by grace are we saved through faith. And this not of ourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, lest no man shall boast. And then we read in Hebrews where it says, without holiness no man will see God. The world we live in is a huge conspiracy against fruit. It makes a huge show of inundating God with what he says he wants, namely shells. And there's no meat. And God will not be deceived or mocked. Do you understand this? It really is basic, isn't it? A fig tree is supposed to give figs. An apple tree is supposed to give apples. A womb is supposed to give children. And a Christian. What is a Christian supposed to give? The fruit of the Spirit, Stephen told you, is love, joy, peace, patience, Kindness, goodness, faithfulness. No, 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 not self-control. Huh? Gentleness, yeah, not self-control. Let's forget that one. How many? Want to remove (laughs) self-control? Take that out. How about joy? Only a simpleton would be joyful. Sophistication consists of knowing there's no reason to have joy. Bob is my dear brother Bob is Jewish. And J.C. Ryle an Anglican bishop writing in the 1900s or the 1800s. J.C. Ryle says On this text that we're studying today, that um, to this day, Jews exist as a living manifestation of the truth, of the fruitlessness of the people of God. And then he uses a, a construction I've never heard to refer to anything but a plant. And he refers to them as wandering Jews, homeless Jews. They're the people of God. And what do the Jews exist for today? The Jews exist to be a humongous object lesson of how God deals with fruitlessness. Am I allowed to say that today or am I now an anti-Semite? Is that true or isn't it? It's true. And so Jesus curses the fig tree. He's cleansed the temple. He curses the fig tree. And now he goes into a few chapters of the most intense rebuke of the religious leaders of his time that you can imagine. And the common theme that holds everything together from here on out is fruitlessness. And we're going to study it. It's just... Again and again and again the theme that God made it to give him glory and it refuses to give him glory. And so Jesus says it will be judged, it will be judged, it will be judged. And as the story goes along the next few chapters, what you feel building is tension. Because you you read it and you think, how could Jesus, gentle Jesus, how could he say these things? But then he says it again the next verse. And then he says it in a different way the next verse. And it just goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on. To the point where you're not asking how Jesus could say this. Because now you know who Jesus really is. Now the question is, how could they not kill him? And then guess what? They do. And then for the first time in your life, if you think fruit... If you think fruitfulness, and if you read the story, actually read it. Don't, don't trust a preacher. Go to the primary sources. You actually read it. What you will see is that Jesus hammers, hammers, hammers this theme of the fig tree not giving him fruit. Guess what? He tells one story, and what's the story? The story is about the, the, the man that has a vineyard, and he leaves it in the charge of his servants. And it comes time for that vineyard to give him his fruit. And what happens? Do you remember? He sends servants back to collect the fruit. What happens? They kill him. Sends more. They kill him. And then what does the master do? He says, what? If I send, what? My son, they'll give me my fruit. And then they do what? They think scheming devils that they are. They think if we kill his son the heir. Then we'll permanently possess it. And then Jesus says what? The point of the story, what he says next. He says, "How," how do you think that master will respond? Everybody talks about many paths to heaven, right? And the thing that everybody has in common about many paths to heaven is, That you don't have to take the path of Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. The many paths all have this in common, that they bypass the Son. How do you think that the Father who gave His Son to the cross will respond to those who killed Him? And you say, well, they didn't kill Him. They just had another path to heaven than Him. Well, what? The death of His Son is rendered unneeded? this theology isn't a big deal. It just recognizes that God could have done it in a number of different ways. I mean, God is really open-minded like me. Yeah, right. Most closed-minded people on the face of the earth are the ones that talk about open-mindedness all the time. Now, if you've been listening with meekness and humility this morning, Here's what's happened to you. You have come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit that you're fruitless, right? That your church is fruitless. That your nation is fruitless, right? Can we all admit this or do we still have to have a conspiracy of lies and silence and dunces? Can we admit it? Okay. So what's the answer? It's really weird... What happens next in the text? Would somebody read it, please? Loudly, somebody like Curtis. Curtis, would you get a Bible and read it? Because you've got a big voice. Pick up right after Jesus curses the fig tree. Thank. You. Now isn't that weird? Where did that come from? You know, all of a sudden we've morphed into an assurance of the power of prayer. Well, where it came from is that everybody trembled as they looked at the tree and realized their fruitlessness. And immediately there's this promise That if you ask for anything in the name of God. You see, this is why the saints have always said that prayer is the best proof of regeneration. Because people who have no faith don't pray. People that have faith pray. Do you understand this? And Jesus says, pray. And when you get done seeing the fruit tree curse, what do you pray for? What do you pray for? Stephen's preached on the gifts of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. What do you pray for? You pray for fruit. Right? You pray for fruit for yourself, fruit for your children, fruit for your husband and wife. You pray for fruit for your roommates, fruit for your professors, fruit for your preacher, fruit for your elders. You pray fruit for your church. You pray what? You pray that every womb will have a baby. And you say, oh, there he goes about wombs. No, this one time I actually wasn't talking about real flesh and blood babies. This time I was actually talking about fruit. And you pray that everything that God made to produce fruit will produce fruit. You want the cows pregnant. You want the apple trees pregnant. You want the women pregnant. And you especially want the soul, and the church pregnant. So that when Christ returns, everybody's dressed, right? And by the way, how are they dressed? Do you ever realize what the dress is at the marriage feast of the Lamb? You know, a lot of you have gotten pretty intense about wedding gowns. What is our wedding gown at the marriage feast of the Lamb? Do you know what? Revelation tells us it is. Do you know? Yeah. The righteous acts of the saints are the clothing that Jesus takes as being his bride's clothing that's beautiful. We are dressed in fruit. So instead of going to all the wedding stores on the internet and in Louisville, what we really need to do is just pray. And God will dress us in righteousness. God will give us the fruit. He promises. So I know you feel fruitless. Some of you really are fruitless because you don't belong to God. You don't have the Spirit. And you need to come to Him on your knees and give your life to Jesus Christ. Some of you are believers and you're still fruitless. I'm not speaking in an absolute sense. And you need to get on your knees and say to Him, Give me fruit or I die. So, let's do it. Let's get on our knees again.